So today we're going to talk about listening, um, or I should say last week we talked about listening, and today we're going to talk about dealing with the aftermath of listening. Last week uh, we talked about how Christians can um, benefit society by being listeners in a society that really mostly wants to shout. And um, if, if, we can, if we can listen as Christians, that will be a benefit to our society. But it raises the question, what if after you've gotten done listening, what if we don't like what we hear? What if, what if we hear things that disturb us? What if we hear things that we don't think are the way the world should be? I'm in my mid-50s, and that means I'm old enough now to start telling people to get off my lawn. Um, you know, you young whippersnappers with your crazy ideas. Um, and I look around and I see things that, that disturb me. I, I, I kind of, uh, you know, take in the society that we're in and I, I look at things and they disturb me. One of the things that disturbs me is that hair has changed. When I was young, w- women, women, women used to color their hair when I was young, but they color them all new colors today. And that's disturbing to me. It bothers me. Um, and men used to have long, you know, this is the 1970s. People used to have long hair. Men used to have long hair. But now the long hair has moved to their faces. So, um, so you see these uh, handlebar mustaches and big Civil War beards, and you know it's things like that that I just kind of go, you know, I don't, I don't quite get this culture, right? Um, I think about how how so many people have body art. You know, there were piercings, and now increasingly tattoos. And you know, when I was a kid growing up, the only person I knew with a tattoo was my grandfather. He was the only person in my whole world who had a tattoo, or at least a visible one. And uh, these are these are examples of how society has changed. And you know, you know, I'm a cranky old man, so that's okay. These are relatively benign, but but there are ways that the society has become coarse that that I do not like. That um, you know, I think I think a lot of people point to our president, um, who is a coarse man, and they see him as kind of the source of the coarseness. I actually see him more as a symptom um, than than the cause of so much coarseness. I think of him as kind of an obnoxious New Yorker who wound up in the White House and, and you know, for better or worse, there he is. But I see him as a reflection of a gradual coarsening of society. And I don't like a coarse society. And even that, though, we can say, well, you know, get over it. You know, that's just the way things are now. But there are, there are things in our society, there are things in our culture that are just very problematic. This, this society, the, the American nation, uh, imprisons a higher percentage, we imprison 22% of the world's inmates, a highest percentage of any developed country. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what's wrong in our culture that we imprison so many people? We have the highest rate of teen pregnancy in the developed world. We have to ask ourselves, what's going on with our culture? That there are so many people who are facing that situation. We have one of the highest rates of obesity in the whole world. We have too many people eating too much bad stuff and not getting enough exercises. And I stand before you as someone who has seen the doctor write obese on the form. There are things in our society that are troubling. As a pastor, I often look to church and I say, maybe part of the problem is how the church relates to society. And I think we do see reflections of the, the problems in our society in the church. Um, the, the Pew organization surveys this, this, uh, people in this country, and they did two surveys in 2007 and 2014. They found out that in 2000, um, 2007, 16% of the people in this country identified as unaffiliated, having no religious affiliation whatsoever. 
But seven years later, 23% did. So in just seven years, the number of people in this country who identified as unaffiliated in from any religion went from 16 to 23% of the population. And obviously, because this country is de-Christianizing, uh, that came in large part out of the Christian population. I don't have statistics for all the different traditions within the Christian movement, but among mainline Christians, that's the the group of uh, religious traditions that that would include the Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church, our two denominations. Among those, the number of Christians has dropped from 18% of the public to just under 15%. If you work that out, for those seven years, that's 2,000 fewer mainline Protestants a day for seven years. And it's been four years since then, and the trend shows no sign of abating. I think one of the things that concerns me is I see the benefits that Christianity gave to our culture, and as the society de-Christianizes, I think that it's contributing to some of the problems in our society. But that's my world. You have your own world, and my guess is you see things in your worlds that give you pause, that make you troubled, that maybe maybe some of them are like me, you know, get off my lawn, you young whippersnappers, but some of them are really disturbing problems. What What to do about this particular problem in your world? One of the other problems in our world is that is that we don't know those worlds. I don't know your world, and you don't know my world unless I happen to mention it in in church. Let me give you an example. How many of you recognize this picture? All right, does anybody recognize this picture? Okay, that's what I was afraid. This, I'm looking at the youngest people. All right, somebody does. Okay, all right. So some of the youngest people in our church recognize this. This is, uh, um, this is, I need the small print. This is Luis Fonsi, and uh, it's the music video for the song Despacito. It is the most popular video on YouTube. It's only a year and a half old. It's been seen 5.4 billion times. Okay, that's 9 million times a day since it came out 18 months ago, 19 months ago. I never heard of it. I'd never heard of it. We all have our own little cultures. I mean, we see, we see some, some group of cultures and we say, well, that's, that's the surrounding culture. But there's so much of it today that we don't even see. When I was born, uh, I, um, I was born just a few months after Newton Minow famously said that television was a vast wasteland. When, when he said that in 1961, there were three channels of vast wasteland. Okay. How vast can that really be? Today, we have cable. We have, we, we've been through and have discarded our VCRs and our DVDs. And now we have streaming. We have so much vast wasteland that I can't keep track of your vast wasteland and you can't keep track of mine. We used to go to work and talk to somebody about the show we watched last night, but now we find out that, oh no, I binge-watched that one last summer and you're binge-watching it right now, but the one that you watched last summer I haven't even watched yet. We don't have a popular culture to the degree we used to have. So it's hard to even understand what the culture is, but we see it. Each of us sees it. And I think that there's a lot of things to be troubled by. You've heard me before say that there are a lot of things in our society that are getting better. If you look at some of the numbers, this society is wealthier, better educated, healthier. There are so many ways that this society is better than it has ever been. 
But at the same time, there are things that give us pause. There are things that we find troubling. And as the church, we need to ask ourselves, what do we do about that? How do we respond in the face of a world that is often troublesome, that that gives us pause, that makes us think that can't be right? How do we how do we respond to that? You know, there's there's a lot of Christians who say, well, the answer is you ignore it. You kind of you you find sanctuary. The church is a sanctuary, and you kind of get into the church, and then you kind of hunker down, you batten down the hatches, and then you just try to ride out the storm. And whatever goes on out there in the culture. That's the culture's problem, and thank God, you know, we have the church, and we can find sanctuary in the church. There are people who think that that's what Christianity is called to be. But at least in my reading of the scripture, Jesus is not one of them. Jesus told us to go into that world and make disciples. He said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So how do we do that? How do we as Christians relate to a culture that can be very troublesome? What do we do if we don't like what we hear? Well, fortunately, there is in Scripture a, um, a, um, an example that shows us. We can look, we can look at an example of, of how we can relate to a strange and troublesome culture. And we're going to look at it today. It's the passage we just heard from, from chapter 17 of Acts, Paul's address to the Areopagus, the, the High Council of Athens on Mars Hill. Um, so, um, we are in a we are in a um, conversation looking uh, called greetings from Greece. This is the uh, the uh, Asia Minor and Greece, and that's kind of where we've been looking at Paul's missionary journey. Uh, two weeks ago, we began in Philippi, and then we traveled last week to Thessalonica, and we saw in Thessalonica, Paul uh, was he met some opposition. He met opposition in Philippi, but in Philippi, they just asked him to leave. In, in Thessalonica, he had to he had to sneak out at night. Um, and when they found out he'd gone to Berea, then they pursued him there. And so there was that complicated thing we heard last week where people faked out the pursuers. They said, okay, let's go to the coast, and he can sail back to Asia Minor, and then he won't be in Greece anymore. But actually what he did is he traveled um, down the, <clears throat> the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Say that three times. He traveled down the Peloponnesian Peninsula uh, to Athens, and that's where we left him last week. So... So we're going to look at Paul in Athens. So there's a little bit closer. Athens is one of the biggest cities in um, Europe uh, today. Uh, today it has a population of about 3 million people, and you can see all the gray in that picture. That's where Athens is today. But we're going to look just at the center part because at the time when Paul visited Athens, it was only about 10,000 people who lived in Athens. So you might think of some university town, something like that. So um, we're going to look at the center part of Athens, the oldest part. This is the neighborhood around the Acropolis. The Acropolis is the high city, uh, acro like acrobat, somebody who does things up high, and then polis like metropolis, so Acropolis is uh, the high city. So we're going to see that. Paul is in Athens. He's got some time to kill. We heard that, that Paul <clears throat> is waiting for them. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him. He snuck out by night. They've got to conclude some business, kind of get things sorted out back in Macedonia before they can come down and see him in Athens. So he's a tourist. He's got nothing else to do. He's, this was not part of the plan, so he's killing time in Athens. And so he goes and looks around. So let's see what he might have seen in those days. <clears throat> the, the three arrows show you the part of Athens we're going to look at today. So the first part is the Acropolis. And on the top of the Acropolis, I don't know if you can see that very well, but on the top of the Acropolis is the Parthenon. That's the, uh, the great big temple to Athena. Athena was the, uh, 
the patron goddess of Athens. That's where this town gets its name. So the Parthenon on the top of the Acropolis. And then if you go down the hill from the Acropolis, you see Mars Hill. Uh, Mars Hill, there's a little kind of a saddle there. And then Mars Hill is the next hill over to the northwest. And then if you keep going down that hill, you get to the marketplace where we heard about Paul reasoned with people in the marketplace. So um, now I'm going to turn it around and look at it from a different direction. So now the marketplace is off there. Mars Hill is closer, and then we're kind of at the corner of the Parthenon. And the reason I picked that angle is because that's a photograph I took of it a couple of years ago. So you can see the same structures there, um, and they're still there. Google Earth got it right. So um, uh, Paul went, I'm sure, to the Parthenon. He would have looked at the Parthenon like everybody else. It was an ancient wonder. Um, so Paul was a tourist just like those people right there. And um, and from from the Acropolis, he could have looked down on uh, Mars Hill. There's Mars Hill right there. There's a bunch of people there. There's always a bunch of people there. And one of the reasons, here's those tourists again. If you look behind them, there's a couple of people talking on their cell phones. I think there's good cell coverage on Mars Hill because... Everybody we saw on Mars Hill was talking into a cell phone. It was really kind of strange, but I don't think they had the cell phones in, in Paul's um, era. Maybe that's an example of something that's troublesome. Maybe, maybe you know, the plugged in te- the plugged in world. You know, nobody listens to anybody. They just, you know, jack in and don't pay any attention to anybody around them. Maybe that's a cultural problem. Uh, that's our problem. Paul didn't have that problem. The problem that Paul had was idols. Paul walked around Athens, this town of ten thousand people, and he saw dozens, hundreds. We don't know how many. How many idols he would have seen, but there were idols all over Athens, and Paul was disturbed by them. He was a first century Jew. Uh, you know, the first commandment is, You shall have no other God before me, and the next one is to have no graven images. So Paul sees idols and he thinks, Boy, this place really disturbs me. I am disturbed by all the idols that I saw here. So Paul, Paul, um, Paul is facing a problem. He's facing a foreign culture, a culture that he's not a part of. That troubles him enormously. So what does Paul do? Does he go to the synagogue? Does he just hang out with like-minded people? Uh, people who have kind of a shared understanding and we just kind of ignore what goes on outside the synagogue? Is that what Paul does? No. Well, actually, he does go to the synagogue, but he doesn't limit himself to the synagogue. Luke tells us that he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. We've seen how that's been Paul's habit. The Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, people who share his, his viewpoint... But he also speaks daily in the public square, the marketplace that we saw. He speaks daily in the public square to all who happen to be there. And while he was there, he had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, a debate sounds kind of formal and maybe very confrontational. The the word that's used here um, is actually to put together. It's kind of like we, we might say that we put our heads together. We're kind of reasoning together, trying to figure something out. So Paul had a, a very, a very a gentle debate. Uh, with the philosophers that he found there in the marketplace. So what kind of philosophers? There were Epicureans or Epicureans um, and Stoics. Epicureans are uh, probably the most common philosophy in our society today. Uh, people don't know it, but that's what they believe. What? What? Uh, you could, yeah, let's stick to uh, Epicureans for a minute. So what are Epicureans? Uh, Epicureans believe that, that if there is a God... It really is not of any practical consequence because he or she or they made the world and then they went away and they don't have anything to do with it. That, that you're just on your own. You have to kind of figure things out by yourself. And so you kind of go through life assuming that the gods will not be involved, that there's no, there's no, there's no interaction between you and the gods at all, that you just go through your life 
and you try to have as good a life as you can, you try to have as much pleasure as you can, you try to avoid as much pain as possible, and you know a lot of people like that. It's it's by far, I think, the most common philosophy in our society today, and I think a lot of Christians have have been infected by that worldview, that it is it is astonishingly easy to kind of have that, you know, life's a beach and then you die, uh, stuff happens, you know, the bumper sticker philosophies that we see reflect a whole lot of Epicurean thought. So Paul met some Epicureans in the marketplace. He also met some Stoics. What are Stoics? Stoics are kind of the opposite. They say, no, God's not far out there. God is here. God is everywhere. God is suffused throughout the entire world, that all of creation has God suffused into it, that God is this very diffuse world spirit. And you probably know some people like that too, but not nearly as many. I think this is a less common viewpoint. But Stoics would kind of say, you know, God is everywhere. And if you if you look at something and it's troublesome, God's in there somewhere, and you just kind of cope with it. And yeah, maybe it's hard on you, but you just kind of get through it because because God is ultimately in everything. That God is is this world spirit who is suffused in the whole world. And so if you see poverty or or if you see you know human trafficking, well God's in there somewhere and you just kind of make it through there as well as you can. So so I think a lot of people today um, uh, are Epicureans, and some people are Stoics. And these are the people that Paul reasoned with, that he put his heads together, his head together with theirs in the marketplace. So, so what did they do? Well, a lot of them said he's some kind of a foreign babbler that, you know, what's this stranger doing um, with these strange ideas? But they invited him to the high council of the city. The high council is the Areopagus. It's a, it's a formal organization that, that ran the Athenian culture. And uh, they they were um, kind of the arbiters of new ideas, and so they met on Mars Hill. Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares, uh, the hill of Mars. So that's where we get um, the the Latin name is Mars, the Greek name is Ares. So that's where we get this name Mars Hill or Areopagus. Paul was taken to the High Council of the city, and they said, "Come and tell us about this new teaching. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know all about it." And then. Um, Luke, who is probably not an Athenian, Luke is probably from Macedonia or Asia Minor. Luke says, in this kind of aside, he says, you know, you have to meet these Athenians. You know, if you've never met one, they're really kind of interesting people because they're all talk and no action. All they do is sit around talking all day long about whatever new ideas they get. And so, so Paul, uh, Luke is kind of trying to find common ground with anybody in his audience who's ever met an Athenian. He's saying, yeah, these people. So Paul goes to the high council. And what does he do? Does he say, you people are idolaters. You should know better than what you're doing. You are offending God by building graven images to your pantheon of wacky pagan deities. That's not what he says. Paul says, men of Athens, I notice you're very religious in every way. Paul says, there's a lot that we agree on. You and I, we see things from the same vantage point, we look at this world and we realize this is not all there is. That we are religious. We say that, yes, there is a material world, but that's not the whole story. There is a spiritual realm and it impacts us. That there is more to life than meets the eye. Paul says, I see, you are religious, just like me. We have so much common ground right there. We have common ground. Paul says, there's a lot we agree on. You are very religious in every way. And then he says, and you're asking great questions. These are the important questions that people need to ask. He says, I noticed one of your altars had this inscription on it, 
to an unknown God. You know, this town, this town has so many, so many shrines. You built shrines to, to the most beautiful shrine in the world to Athena. It's just, it's just spectacular. What an amazing Parthenon you built there. And you've got a whole hill named after Mars. You are, you are, you are so religious and you are asking good questions because you're saying, well, we've, 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 we've taken care of Athena and Mars and, you know, no doubt many others around the city. But you're saying, is that it? Because it seems, it seems as if Athena and Mars, they don't, they don't really answer all of our questions. And so you built a shrine and you inscribed on it to an unknown God. You said, there is probably, there must certainly be a God that we have overlooked. And that's a great, that's a great place because I want to share with you some things I've learned because I know some things about that God and I want to share those things with you because you may find them helpful. So he says, here's what I've learned. So Paul says to the, to the Areopagus, you're asking, we have a lot in common and I want to share with you some things that might help you with some of these great questions you're asking. So what does he say? He says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. He, give, he himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. He says to the Epicureans, he says, you're right. He did make the world. We agree on that. We agree that God made the world. But you think, you've always been taught that when he got done, he went away and that's the end of it. But he's not that way. He, you can have a relationship with this God because he is the God who satisfies every need. He's not a distant God living up on Olympus and you'll never see him. He can be a part of your life and he can satisfy your every need. To the Stoics, he says, you're right, we agree. God is not far from us. God is not far from any of us. We live in him and we have our being in him, as one of your own poets said. But he says, but he can be found. He's not just diffused thinly throughout all of creation. He is he is approachable. You can seek him out, you can feel your way toward him, and you can find him. Because he's not a diffuse world spirit. All of the deity is incarnate in one man. And the proof of that is that he's been raised from the dead. He says, these are the things I have learned along the way, and I wanted to share them with you because you're asking great questions. Paul says, this is some things that I've learned. And you know, the thing is, what Paul did works. I mean, it's a strategy we can adopt. We know it works. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove that this strategy works. Okay. How many of you are first century Jews? Okay. None. None of us are first century Jews. And yet here we are in a church talking about Jesus. Why? Because this strategy, this approach that Paul used to reason with the Athenians works. It's how we became Christians. Not necessarily that we weren't on a hilltop talking to some philosophers. But this is the way we heard about Jesus. Is people went into foreign cultures and they said, you're asking great questions and here's some news I've got about Jesus. This is the strategy that Paul adopts and this is the strategy that we can adopt when we're talking to people. Now there's some caveats. First of all, we have to begin with humility. You know, to Paul, Paul himself, he said, you have to start from a position of humility. 
He said to, uh, this is a letter he wrote to the people in Ephesus across the Aegean Sea from, from Athens. He said, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. He says, you can't show up and say, well, I'm a Christian, and you're a pagan, and you've got it all wrong, and let me sort you out. He says that that is, that is impossible to anybody who's been saved by grace through faith. That the ground at the foot of the cross is perfectly level. There are no super saints and there are no super sinners. That we're all equal in the sight of God. So we have to begin with some humility. But the humility, the humility in turn makes it easier to listen. It makes it easier to listen to people and to say, you know what, those are good questions. You know, those are, those are good questions. We don't have a monopoly on good questions in the church. So first of all, we have to begin with humility. But then we can begin, but we can proceed with generosity. And by generosity, I mean to assume good intentions on the part of the people we're, we're engaged with. Uh, we, we assume that they are, in fact, groping their way toward God. They may not say God. They may say a better life. They may say more money. They may say better family situation. Whatever it is that they're looking for. But people don't aspire for bad things. They, they hope that their life will be better. They hope that their family's life will be better. They're trying to figure things out. And so we have to be generous and realize we're all in the same boat there. And then we listen to the questions. What questions do people have? You know, there's only a small subset of all the questions in the world that a pastor can answer. Uh, Paul is reasoning with philosophers, right? And we, we, we listen to this and say, well, I don't know anything about Epicureans. I don't know anything about Stoics. I can't do this work. But Paul was Paul, and Paul was talking to philosophers. I don't talk to philosophers. I don't need to know anything about Epicurean philosophy. I don't need to know anything about Stoicism. I'm, don't bump into any who call themselves that. The truth of the matter is I don't bump into many because I live in a little Christian bubble. I try to get my, my culture by, by watching YouTube and occasionally having a conversation with somebody who's not a Christian. But you have them all the time. And those are the questions that you can listen to and say, how does the gospel speak to this question? Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. And he was, he gives an example of this. He says, he says, if you're, you know, he's in New York. He says, if you've got a member uh, uh, of your church and somebody comes, comes, comes up and says, I'm an investment banker and I've been wondering about short selling. What do Christians believe about short selling? The last person you want to ask is a pastor. Because what on earth does a pastor know about short selling? It's a technical thing that investment bankers might understand, but pastors have no clue about. He says the right person to listen to that question and the right person to answer it is a Christian who's an investment banker. And so in your world, People have questions. People have questions that, that are as technical in their own way as a short-selling question to an investment banker. You hear these questions, and you can answer them far better than an apostle or a preacher. So what are the questions? What are the questions that people are asking? And how is the gospel of Jesus Christ good news? How does it speak into that? How can you say, how can you say, well, I have wrestled with that question myself, and here's what I have learned along the way. And here's why it's good news. So Paul does not plant a church in Athens. He plants a church in Philippi. He plants a church in Thessalonica. 
But he doesn't plant a church in Athens, not that we know about. He goes on and we'll pick him up next week. We'll wrap up the series next week in Corinth. Paul does not plant a church in Athens. Was he successful? You know, most of the people on on the Areopagus, most of the people on Mars Hills laughed at him. They sneered at this idea that there could be a resurrection. But there were a couple of people who listened. There was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and Damaris, a, a prominent woman of that city, and a few others. Was Paul successful? See, I don't know if Paul made many converts, but Christians transformed Athens. If you think of all the ways that Christians have transformed the cultures of the world, it's amazing to think how much better the world is today than it was in Paul's time. If you, if you think about it, certainly Christians have made any number of mistakes, you know, you know, institutionally and individually. You know, we've been hearing in the news this week about, about the Catholic Church. Last week I talked about a, a, a scandal in, in a big um, Protestant church. Christians make all kinds of mistakes. And there's the, the famous ones down through history, the Crusades and the Inquisition. There are mistakes that Christians have made. And in fact, I think this is a place where the church should listen to other cultures. It's so easy to to mix your culture and your belief. This is a place where, you know, one of the things that delights me is this church, we have people who grew up in a different country with a different culture who nevertheless have a Christian worldview. And they can speak into our church and they can say, you know, I think in this area you're confusing your Americanism with your Christianity. And I think that's something that that people from other countries can do for Christians in America. They can actually say, are you sure you're, 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 your, your decisions here are informed by your faith, or is it just that you are swimming along with your culture? And I think that that's a great thing about being part of an international, um, global movement in the church. We can make fewer of those mistakes. But if you think of, you know, I'm not trying to paper over the mistakes. The church has made any number of mistakes. But think of the way the church has made the world better. If you think of the, the time of, of Paul, the poor were on their own. There was, there, was no, there was no institutional help for the, the poor, but the church changed it. The church was generous. The church who was overwhelmingly poor themselves were generous to the poor. The church was the most multi-ethnic, multicultural society the world had ever seen. And if we prize multiculturalism and multi-ethnicity today, diversity, it is because of what the church did. The church eliminated infanticide, and eventually the church eliminated Slavery. The church elevated the position of women in society in a way that had never been seen anywhere in the world. So I would say, yes, Paul was successful in Athens. He went to the world capital of ideas and said, I've got some new ideas. And the world changed. So let me close with this. As we look out at the culture, as we look at our own individual pieces of the culture that, that the ones around us don't necessarily have access to. What disturbs you? And how might the good news of Jesus change that culture? Because this is the world that Jesus loves, and he sent us out into it to tell a world that is struggling and trying to find God how they can find him and how the world can be better for it. Let's pray.
loving and holy God, it is so tempting when we see a world that baffles us and we find it disconcerting and troublesome to to hunker down, to batten down the hatches, to say, well, this storm will blow over. If we just ignore it, it will go away. But Jesus calls us to go out into the world, to be his witnesses in the whole world, to bring good news to a world that is desperate for answers, that is asking good questions, but is looking for answers in the wrong places. Help us, Lord, to listen carefully, to listen with humility and generosity, and then to speak what we know from our own experience about how the gospel addresses those questions. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.